Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. You are listening to Veggie Doctor Radio, and this is episode number 18, How Having Grit Can Help You Reach Your Health Goals with Caroline Adams Miller. When it's dinner time, I got something you should try. It's crunchy, green, and yummy, and it's about to blow your mind. It's low on calories, and it looks like mini trees when you're having dinner with me. Broccoli. Dr. Yami Kazorla Lancaster, board certified pediatrician, certified food for life cooking and nutrition instructor, certified well coach, and passionate promoter of the power of diet and lifestyle in preventing and reversing chronic disease and bringing joy and longevity into our lives. This podcast is focused on plant based nutrition, habit formation, behavior change, and motivation so that you can have the tools to live the best life possible. Thank you so much for tuning in today, and I hope that you keep coming back as a regular listener. Are you ready to get started? Let's do it. Today, I have the great privilege of having Caroline Adams Miller with me on podcast. She is a positive psychology expert and has been a pioneer with her groundbreaking work in the areas of goal setting, accomplishment, grit, happiness, and success. She is recognized as one of the world's leading experts on this research and how it can be applied to one's life for maximum transformation and growth. Caroline is the author of seven books, including Getting Grit, which we're going to discuss more today. She has been featured in hundreds of magazines, newspapers, and other media around the world. She is also a coach and a speaker. And Caroline's TEDx talk on grit, which is entitled The Moments That Make Champions, has received great reviews. Caroline, thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. And thank you so much for writing the book, Getting thank you. It. Love it so much. So I wanted thank to you. open up with... That's music to an author's ears. Thank of you. course. No, I, and I, I do, I really do appreciate that there's people out there that write this great work because it can change lives. It means a lot to some people. Yeah, no, it does. And it's not easy to get published, even if you're published a lot. I mean, this book was a real fight. This book took a lot of grit to see through to the finish line, but that's another story. But still, I was writing about a topic I had to emulate in order to get it out there. Oh, well, that's good to know because we get it at the final version. And some people think, oh, especially somebody that's written seven books, right? You you can do that in your sleep must be so easy. (laughs) No, nothing, nothing good is, is, uh, happens easily is what I've learned. Very little that's good happens without a certain amount of grit. So we can go into that, but we will. I have a specific question on that one. Okay. One of my favorite things about the book is your definition of what you call authentic grit, Mm -hmm. which you say is the passionate pursuit of hard goals that awes and inspires others to become better people, flourish emotionally, take positive risks, and live their best lives. Why do we need authentic grit in this day and age? Great question. Thank you. And that's really what drove me to write the book is exactly that question because uh, Angela Duckworth is uh, a friend. Uh, I'm an admirer of hers, and she's been a mentor in many ways by pioneering this great research on grit. And what I wanted to do was I wanted to expand upon what she's done. And her definition is one that many people know about because her book's a bestseller in 30 languages. And she's done this amazing work. She's a MacArthur Genius Grant winner. But her definition is around passion and, and pursuit of hard goals. And I think that's all part of what we're talking about. However, in my work with people, so I work with, for 30 some years, I've worked with people to help them identify and pursue hard goals. And those are often the most meaningful goals, the goals that you end up not regretting later 
later in life, the ones that take all of your um, character strengths and energy and you have to you know, delay gratification. What I realized that is that grit is only good when it's used in a way that other people look at and they're, they're awed by it. They're awed by the pursuit of the goal. They're awed by its meaning. They're awed by the ways in which you're willing to do what you have to do to get there. And in many ways, watching somebody with this kind of grit um, elevates you as a human being. In some ways, you become better simply by virtue of being in the presence of or in uh, hearing the story of somebody who has this kind of grit. So what I did in the book, as you know, is I divided grit into good grit and bad grit. And so the umbrella term for all good grit is this kind of authentic grit. And I, I think that is is my main contribution to the field of psychology and motivation and functioning at your highest level is because we do have to understand that not all grit is good. Some grit is stupid grit. But when you're in the presence of somebody who embodies this kind of good grit, you too will become a better human being simply by virtue of being uh, in their orbit. And that is something we all need to know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In your book and your TEDx talk, you give examples of ways in that our society, we're kind of moving towards mediocrity, (laughs) you know, like marathon times are going down and everybody's doing a tough mutter. Everybody's doing a color run, but we may not be getting finishing times or just kind of participating. So my question is, and this is totally personal because I'm one of those people that has brought down the average finish time for marathons. (laughs) Okay. So Mm -hmm. my question is, is, is there any value in just doing some of these things to finish it? Because mm-hmm. not everybody can run a marathon. Not everybody is doing a color run at all. Some people are just sitting on the couch. So is there any value of just finishing one of these events? Tons of value, tons of value. And that's when it's a learning goal. So there's a difference between learning goals and performance goals. And what I'm, I'm, I'm not just talking about people who are doing something for the first time or doing it for the experiences um, of it, because that has been looked at. I'm separating out people who are elite marathoners, people who do it um, to become better at what they do. That's what I'm talking about is the fact that at the top levels of the sport of male marathoners, and I think we look at other sports and we've seen the same thing happening is what we found is that the average elite performance has gotten slower. Mm -hmm. And that's what's of grave concern. And that's why I quoted the article from the Wall Street Journal where there was an interview with the head of U.S. um, running who basically said, we don't have competitions anymore. We have parades. And that's the the bigger point that I'm trying to make is there's been a celebration of people simply showing up for things, getting a trophy for just being on a team, being told you're a winner, even if you haven't gone out of your comfort so that bigger movement is what has created um, a lot of mediocrity and a lot of celebration of things that really don't deserve to be celebrated at the level they're celebrated. So I'm not saying don't go out and try to do hard things. By all means, go and try to do hard things. But if you always remain in a place where you're just learning how to finish something, you're never really improving. And that's the bigger point that I'm trying to get at with those and other anecdotes. Yeah. And that brings me to the next question, which is pushing ourselves beyond our comfort zone. Right. Because many of us do. You can go out, you can easily run a half marathon, you can easily do whatever. It just becomes easy. But the things that move us beyond our comfort zone, the things that are truly challenging, you say, is what really brings us Mm -hmm. self-esteem. So talk more about that. Talk more about the pursuit of hard things. Okay. Um, And I I really appreciate you bringing that up so early in the interview, because that is really what got my attention is when I was writing Creating Your Best Life, which came out in very late 2008, early 2009. That book was the very first time anybody connected the science of goal setting with the science of happiness. And that was my capstone when I was at the University of Pennsylvania in their Masters of Applied Positive Psychology. For the first time, me, I found this research and I pulled it all together which really surprised me, but I came into it as an athlete, as a former journalist, and as a writer, not as a psychologist. So I was able to look with a more critical eye at why are there no books on the market about goal setting that actually have footnotes and evidence in them? Why is the law of attraction this? If you want it, you can have it. Why is that the main goal setting book? So in the process of 
creating, creating your best life. I did find this research, it's very interesting, that talks about what happens at the end of the day and, and what, what happens subconsciously that many people don't know is happening. I didn't know this, is that we scan our days for things that we're proud of. We scan our days for things that we did that were hard because at the end of the day, those are the things that give you confidence. Those are the things that build your self-esteem. Those are the things that tell you you can survive um, hard things when they happen to you, that you will have what it takes to survive, to thrive, to develop a team around you, um, and to have the confidence to keep going when the night is dark. And so um, what we have found, though, is too many people are living in the moment, instant gratification. We don't, you know, stay at websites if they don't load up in, you know, three seconds. We don't sit with discomfort. And so the reason why it's so important to have grit and to do hard things is because that's when we discover what we're made of. And I was even looking at some research yesterday about it's really important to do hard problems. It's really important to try to solve difficult equations because that's when we come up with innovative solutions. That's when we have breakthroughs. Nothing clever or innovative comes from doing easy things, either thinking easy things or doing in easy things. We only discover what we're made of and have disruptions to the status quo when people go outside of their comfort zone and test themselves to find out what they're truly made of. And that is, at the end of the day, that is what makes people feel competent, confident, and masterful in their environments. And we don't do enough of that, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And I want to bring it to the topic of children because I'm a pediatrician and I have a little story I want to tell you. And this happened like a week before I read your book. And then I put the two together. It was just like, bam. So I had this little three-year-old well child check visit. And during, you know, my well child checks, I always ask about growth and development. And one of the questions I asked around three for this little boy was if he was able to dress himself. And the mom responded that, yes, you know, he's able to dress himself. And, you know, some three-year-olds maybe get the shirts backwards or can't zip all the way. And she said, he, he gets frustrated by, about putting up on his own socks. But I told him, you know, we can do hard things. She said that we can do hard things. And I was like, wow, she's a really, like, I just love the way her mom brain worked. Like, instead of saying, getting frustrated or just doing it for him, Mm -hmm. She convinced this little boy, you can do hard things. And when I read your book and I put it two together and I was like, that's it. We mm -hmm. need to teach our children yeah. how to develop grit. So what is your advice? How can we start to teach our children or even inspire in them mm -hmm. the, the drive or the want to have challenging things in their lives? I love your story. And I've heard so many variations of that story around the world since I started going around talking about the book this year. Um, so I want to, if you, if it's okay, I want to pinpoint that and come back and, and ask you some questions about that story. But um, the thing that I think is most important is in Chinese culture, there's a concept called shiku, and I probably just completely butchered that. But what it means, and this is infiltrated throughout the Chinese school system, is that they believe in the concept of eating bitter. So shiku translates into eating bitter. And what that means is that they believe that in order to have the sweetness of fruit, ripened fruit that's on the vine and goes through a growing process and the sun comes and it rains, is you have to eat bitter before you have the taste of ripened fruit at the end of the cycle. And too often, I think what we do is we want everybody to be a winner, to eat sweet fruit before they've actually gone through the process of eating bitter. And so I think some cultures do this much, much better than we have done this. And um, right before Getting Grit came out, a year or two before it, um, the uh, anthem of the Chinese tiger mother, what was it called? Mm -hmm. um, the tiger mother book. Mm -hmm. But anyway, so her idea, of which I think has some really valuable concepts behind it is that she says in the book that Asian parents presume their children are strong and her observation of American culture is that we presume our children are weak and I think there's a lot to be said for that because as I raised my three now adult children it was during the self-esteem movement when we were told 
and I made a lot of mistakes. I really did. I wish I could go back and do it. But we were told to make our children happy, make sure they're happy, make sure they feel no pain. As a doctor, you probably know this because this was all the time when the standards in medicine were your, your um, patient should feel no pain. Um, so no pain whatsoever, give them opioids, but make sure that there's no pain. Well, that's, that's a faulty premise because if our children grow up feeling no pain, not feeling what failure is about, they never learn to survive. They never learn what they're made of to go back to this other point. And so what can we do as parents? I think the first thing we can do is role model that we too live that way that when we um, fail, that we have ways to overcome it. And I think women need to do a much better job of this in particular because so often we're, we're acculturated, acculturated, I think is the word, to look like things are effort, effortless and, and perfect and we're thin and we have muscles and we have jobs and we're smart and we're well put together and it's all effortless. When in fact, when, we don't, when our children don't see that we too struggle, that we don't get what we want, they don't learn that their parents have had to persevere either. So as I went through the publishing of this book, I had about a year and a half, almost two years of solid rejection. I had every publisher that I could think of or that my agent reached out to reject me. And it was a surprise because I've been published and translated into many languages since 1988. So it's not like I'm a newbie. It's not like I'm not a good writer. I knew I was, those were some of the traits I brought to the table that were helpful, but I got rejected everywhere. Why? I got rejected because Angela Duckworth had a major book contract that really big footed any other book that was going to be about grit. And so the publishers all said to my agent, you know, why would anyone buy a book on grit other than Angela Duckworth's book? And so I shared my stories of rejection with my children. I made sure that they saw that their mom was really disappointed, that she was spending years on something, but that I had the passion in my, what I was doing. And I believed enough in myself that I literally did the equivalent of I pushed all my poker chips into the middle of the table. I closed my coaching practice and I said, I'm going away to focus on just getting this book done, because if I have to, I will self-publish. That didn't have to happen because out of the woodwork came a publisher um, who did believe in my book at the very last minute. But I, I made sure, partly because of this research, I know that we only learn by watching other people overcome and hearing stories of overcoming. That's how we begin to understand that this is what people do when times are hard, is they persist. They bring passion to the table and they persist in the things that are meaningful to them. And so that's what I did. So that's one thing parents can do. Should I keep going? No, I love that. Oh, it's just, I love this stuff. But I, I completely agree because that's one of the things I've changed in my parents. And I think all of us as moms, we can probably all say we've, you know, we should, we should say we've all made mistakes because that's just the reality, right? We've all made mistakes. There's all things we wish we could go back and do over. But one of the things I practice with my children is that um, I tell them right away, you know, especially if I make a parenting mistake, I'm like, oh. I kind of screwed that one up. Sorry, dudes, you know, I have two right. boys. And I think that helps them see that it's normal as humans for us to stumble. It's normal for us to fall. But what do we do? We get back up, back we up. get back up and we try again and we go forward. And I think that that's, what's really important for our kids to know. Um, and then the other thing that, that kind of reminds me of this is you talk about at the end of your book, you have a whole chapter on patience. And mm -hmm. I re I just love that chapter because it's, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm a very impatient person. I kind of want everything yesterday. And that's mm -hmm. how I pursue my life and my goals. But it's even this day and age, it's worse and worse. I mean, everything is fast. Yeah. We can get, we can download books in 30 seconds. We don't have to even wait for Amazon Prime. And right. It's, it's Amazon now. Yeah, yeah I know. Um, What's with Prime? You can get it now. Right. And you link this, this problem with impatience mm -hmm. to our suicide rates and the suicide problems. And that's very chilling, but it's very true because I suffered from depression a lot, especially when I was a teenager, which was some of my darkest years. But mm -hmm. that teenage brain already has a difficult time seeing the future. They already live very much in the present and they have a difficult time seeing that maybe it could be better in the future. Yeah. So talk to us more about that and how we can talk to our children, especially if we have teens at home about hanging in there, hanging in yeah. there, because even when they're in the greatest pain, which we're all going to encounter those times that just seem to break us. Yeah. How do we convince them to hang in there? 
Oh, this is such a painful subject. Um, I do have a story in the book um, about I went to speak at Murphy Middle School, which is just outside Dallas, Texas. So it's um, an affluent area. And uh, I spoke to a middle school, thousands of children, and I talked to them about the importance of patience and humility and being able to wait and know that um, as we overcome things, we develop our character strengths and we find out who's on our team and all those things. And so it was just an amazing reception. The kids were so receptive to this message. But what was really difficult to hear about eight months later is that there had been um, a double suicide at the high school right um, after this middle school. And the school psychologist was on a conference call with me and the school's principal. And she said, if only you'd been here four years ago. And I said, well, why do you say that? And she said, because I see a direct link between these kids feeling that um, they can't sit through discomfort, that this pain will be permanent. And in this case, it was two girls who committed suicide over a romantic breakup with the same boy. And she said, I just see as a professional that they don't believe in their ability to wake up and have a future. And she said, the message you brought to the middle school was exactly what we're trying to communicate to this generation. But we have been completely infused with this idea that things ought to happen immediately. Um, one of the things I put in the book is that goldfish now focus longer than human beings. You know, they, they focus for, I think, seven, eight seconds, and human beings can only focus for seven. It's like, what have we done to ourselves? With these smartphones, which I saw a 60 Minutes piece where this you know, game developer, app developer in Silicon Valley he held up the phone. He said, these things are slot machines and they're brainwashing our children. We have to get away. And he, was, he started this very unpopular movement among his peers. We've got to stop addicting kids to these instant gratification slot machines. And I saw just yesterday on the news, you probably saw it too, there's a consumer movement to get Apple to address the issue of iPhone addiction. And so we live in this society where kids are given smartphones as babysitters. They have instant gratification. Even Domino's Pizza thinks it's a tremendous technological advance that they created an app where you just text uh, an emoji of a pizza slice and a pizza arrives at your door 10 minutes later. I mean, why does anyone even have to breathe to get a pizza anymore? All you have to do is text an emoji. So I really did begin to see the importance with grit in particular, which if you go back to the definition of grit, which is passion and perseverance in pursuit of long-term goals. And when you throw in my authentic grit, you go out of your comfort zone, you awe and elevate other people also as you do this. Um, and it's in order to live your best life. And in order to do all of those things, it's not going to be a quick fix. These are hard goals. These are goals that take time. By definition, they cannot be pursued or achieved quickly. So you must cultivate patience. And so that's why I have all these exercises I came up with in the book. And I found some that they're being taught at university levels where, for example, um, a professor of art history at Harvard University, one of her assignments is to send her students into museums and the assignment is to sit in front of a work of art for 30 minutes without looking away. 30 minutes. And kids go in there thinking, I can't do this. It's too hard. I've never looked at anything for 30 minutes. I've never focused that long on anything. And what they find, though, is that they begin to develop more you know, nuanced thinking and looking at something. And so we have to force ourselves to do these things, to wait, to wait, wait to make a decision, wait to walk away from something, get away from a smartphone, go out into nature, leave your smartphone at home, and just have patience with yourself in the process of being alive. And of course, that's hard to do. But I don't see any way around it. If you want to develop the right kind of grit, you're going to have to tackle this subject one way or another. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And we have to develop that patience muscle. We have to work it. You do talk about meditation in your book in a different chapter, but mm -hmm. I've been practicing meditation for several years. And that's one of those things that's helped me a little bit with my yeah. patience problem. <laughs> but definitely because you sit there and you're just like, okay, I'm just going to sit through this even when my mind feels like it's like whirling inside just continue to practice that. 
Can I say something about that when it comes to addiction for a Absolutely. moment? Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you've looked at my website or you know my story or people watching this know my story, I really started in this whole field of helping other people and setting goals with my recovery from my eating disorder 30 years ago. And so I was bulimic back at a time when nobody got better and it was hopeless and uh, people didn't even talk about bulimia. It was one of those verboten topics. It was just too disgusting. In fact, the, um, the book review in the Sunday New York Times book review of my book, My Name is Caroline, in 1988 was, this is disgusting, who would ever want to read about this, blah, blah, blah. But my point is that in in order to overcome my eating disorder, I had to develop self-regulation, the ability to delay gratification. And that is part and parcel of what we have to do with grit. In fact, when you go to any treatment center, any you know, cutting edge treatment center that deals with any kind of addiction, gambling, you know, eating disorders, alcoholism, drug abuse, they all teach meditation because it calms the brain and you do learn to develop, um, you do develop uh, self-regulation. It seems to change our brain structure. So that is one of the most important things that we can try to do is learn how to sit quietly with our emotions. And I would imagine that you as a doctor encourage your your patients to try it. Is is that what you do? Oh, absolutely. As many people as possible. I talk about meditation, not just for adults, but also for children, because Mm -hmm. young children can start learning, you know, just even just mindfulness practices, short little mindfulness practices, not going to be the full out 30 minutes or 60 minutes that adults might do, but they can integrate it from a young age. And I think kids need it. There's a lot of anxiety in children now. We're seeing it's becoming more and more, um, prevalent and social anxiety. I mean, it's just interesting how our society is changing with the technology and and causing some of these issues, but absolutely, I recommend it. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Mm -hmm. And Instagram, if I read this correctly, Instagram is the social media tool that seems to bring the most misery to people because it's these carefully cultivated images of the perfect life that creates this, you know, um, downward social comparison, or I guess it's upward social comparison where it's, you know, their life is better than mine. It's more perfect. They have more friends. They go to better parties, whatever it is. And if people could just put away these comparison apps like Instagram and stop curating their lives to look so perfect, I think women in particular um, are really, really hurt by some of the comparisons that go on in social media. So, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, Uh, Absolutely. I'm 100% on board with that. And it it is. It's it's one of those things you have to decide to do, though, because it will infiltrate your life. You have to be very deliberate about mm -hmm. what you choose to expose your brain to. Yeah. I wanted to go a little bit of a lighter subject. One of the things I try to promote with this podcast is healthy lifestyles. Mm -hmm. So how can moms and dads out there, you know, they're tired, they're working their full-time jobs, but they're also parents to little kids. How can they apply this concept of grit in order to improve their nutrition and their lifestyles for the health and well-being of themselves and their children? Well, that's a great question. So Whenever I'm asked at the end of an interview, hey, how would you summarize what your, you know, what your message is? I always say do hard things. And doing hard things has a way of bettering us. And uh, it does make us better, more, you know, I think fully individuated people. And making decisions to, for example, eat better, meditate, um, exercise, exercise regularly, put your ego on the line and enter uh, any kind of race, any kind of challenge that involves your body, um, physically or to do something. There's um, a big movement I saw this week about people giving up alcohol for the month of January. Those things are hard and they require saying no to yourself. And in many ways, although grit is more long-term, short term, I think it involves a certain kind of resilience, which feeds into grit um, to develop better patterns of living. And I do believe that if we have a healthy body, we have a healthy mind. I think it really does pay off long-term and I think the science is in on that too. So I would say that that's the first thing that comes to mind for me. And if I were to unpack my life, I would say that the things that I'm proudest of 
are the things that I've done that are hard physically. So I get up generally at 4.10 in the morning and go to a swim practice. And it's never easy. It's not like I wake up and go, this is great. I'm going to go push my heart rate up to 158, and I'm going to be in a two-ounce bathing suit at 5 in the morning. But when that practice is done, I'm just so proud of myself, A, that I did it, B, that I was around other go-getters. I mean, we can't overlook the power of, of contagion, social contagion. It's when you choose to do hard things, you're often in the presence of other people who are doing hard things. And I think by nature, what we're doing is we're elevating the quality of companionship and friendship that we have around us. And that in and of itself makes us better. So the things that I do to make myself better, um, I hope, are the things that I, that I do that require, for example, I haven't had a drink of alcohol in over 30 years. At first, that was hard. Now it's just part of who I am. And that's another thing we see is when you choose to do things that are hard, physically, nutritionally, over time, they become habits and they're not hard anymore. Overcoming my eating disorder, that was hard to not binge whenever I felt like it at first. Now it's an afterthought. I mean, my eating disorder is the furthest thing from my mind. But at one time, it was hard. So that's the beauty of doing hard things is they get easier. Right. It's not hard forever. You will eventually get to the point where it's the same as it was when we first started to walk. At first, it wasn't, you know, the most easy thing. But then we did it and now we don't think about it. So and I think as okay. parents, I just want to say that I think if my kids were to reflect back to my husband and I, because I've been married for 30 some years, the things that they think about us that they're proud of, whenever we ask them, what is your favorite story about something that we've done in your life that's influenced you? They've never told us stories about things we did that were easy. They always tell us stories about things we did that were hard, that made an impression on them. So I think there's this ancillary benefit of doing hard things that pays off decades in the future that we can't see it's coming, but I promise you it comes. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. Mm -hmm. Let's address this tiny issue about fear. You cite fear as one of the major things that holds people back from doing hard things. How can mm -hmm. we overcome this fear paralysis? By Easy doing question, right? <laughs> How do you get courage? By doing things that require bravery. Um, there's absolutely no evidence to support the idea that you become resilient by avoiding stressful things. And that's one of the problems I see with this whole safe space movement and microaggressions and all this stuff about protect yourself from hard things and then, or scary things or things you don't want to hear, you know, this whole movement of you should only hear things you agree with or you're, you know, you need to go to a safe space in a university. I just think that in order for us to do hard things, we have to face our fear. Um, and how do you face fear? For some people, it's easier than it is for others. Let's face it. Some people are wired to be a little bit more zestful, a little less cautious. Um, when I look at people's via character strength lineup, and that as a coach, that's what I start with is they take this free test that ranks their, their character strengths from 1 to 24. For people who are higher in bravery and, and maybe purpose and zest, taking risks and harnessing fear um, is a little bit easier than for people who are high in things like curiosity, love of learning, judgment, critical thinking. They overthink, overthink, overthink. And for them, hiring a coach or having an accountability buddy, that's how they learn to take risks and do hard things that scare them. Um, but in many ways, you should be accountable to somebody else to do something that you're afraid of. Otherwise, I fear that no one will ever take the plunge and do that hard thing. Another exercise that I find is really powerful is to ask people about the biggest risk they've ever taken in their lives and to list right next to it, what are the payoffs that you got from taking that risk? And there's always this eureka, aha moment where they go, wow, those are the best things in my life. Is those things that I did or those risks that I took that I thought I couldn't get through or that wouldn't pay off. And in fact, you know, this is the person I married, is the person I was afraid to ask out on a date, that kind of story. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I started my own private practice a couple of years ago. And, you know, it's one of those things in primary care that nobody does anymore and was warned against it. And of course, I many nights where I was just like, woke up in the middle of the night, like, <gasps> I'm really going to do this. But now it's, I, I, I would definitely do it again. It's taught me so much. And every day I learn something new. And I approach it now differently. I approach it now instead of being anxious about it and being like, okay, 
what challenge am I going to have today that I'm going to learn from and I get to keep and take forward so that it'll help me with my next challenge. So it's become more of a fun, exciting thing instead of like a scary, oh, what's going to get me sort of thing. Well, so let me unpack that with you. How did you, how did you harness your own fear to take the risk? Who were your role models and how did you actually get yourself to take the plunge and do it? Well, I had gone to a retreat by another physician who had done it, Pamela Weibel, and she inspired me and other physicians that had done it had inspired me. And I'm, I'm a go-getter. So I'm one of those like, okay, well, if other people can do it, so can I. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, I am, I think even though I'm risk averse in some ways, there's other ways that I'm not as risk averse as other people. And so um, mm-hmm. after I got the okay from my husband, because, you know, he was going to be able to support the family if, mm-hmm. if I did fail, then um, I didn't feel like, like it was going to be an issue. I could go ahead and do it. I had a safety net below me too, which helped. Well, so it sounds to me like you had a role model. You had some kind of circle around you that, that you felt was an, a safety net, invisible safety net, but people who believed in you. And then you had the approval of somebody who was important to you, who maybe sculpted you with positive words. We call that the Michelangelo effect. So when you have those things in place, and I do think women have to really think hard about this, because too often women do not surround themselves with people who believe in them. We find that too many women are surrounded by frenemies, people who are friends, but who are enemies. And so we cannot um, look away from the impact that it has when other people don't believe in us or they sculpt us with what we call either passive aggressive or active destructive comments. And so there is a formula for learning to take a risk. It's having a role model, asking yourself why not instead of why. I find gritty people ask themselves why not. Um, But then they have accountability. And then they have people who believe in them, who sculpt them with all the right words and the right gestures that allow them to begin to or begin or continue to see themselves as those heroes in their own stories. Mm-hmm. And so there is a pop process. It's a formula that you can unpack. It's not some kind of fog that overcomes you. And you go, now I'm going to take a risk. There is a formula that's very effective. And you actually demonstrated that formula really well. Awesome. Well, great. And hopefully other people can take that now and apply it to their lives and see what hard goal that they can pursue. Mm-hmm. I want to talk a little bit more about you, if that's okay. One of the things that I ask all of my guests is what motivates them? You've done some magnificent work and you have this, these great books. What motivates you to do the work that you do? Thank you for asking that. Um, I think a few things motivate me. One is um, when I overcame my eating disorder and wrote the first book by anybody who overcame bulimia and lived to tell the story, um, I didn't know what would happen to my life. I was 25 years old, Doubleday publishes this book, and suddenly it's like a bomb went off in my living room, and I'm on every show in the world, and it's like people are looking at me in a magnifying glass and saying, look, she walks, she talks, she's intelligent, she wrote her own book. I mean, it was like I was the exhibit for bulimia. And what happened as a result of that is I got hundreds of thousands, and I'm not exaggerating, of letters telling me I'd save their lives because I gave them hope. And it changed me so fundamentally to know that simply writing a story that gave people hope could save their lives. I think the rest of my life has been devoted to coming up with books that were, in many cases, the first of their kind that gave people hope and tools to do hard things. So whether it's saving your own life from an eating disorder or um, getting gritty or learning how to set goals with the science of goal setting theory, which was creating your own life. My belief is that we can all live bigger, bolder lives. And my passion now is to take whatever platform I have, whatever, um, whatever publicity I get for the work I do and to help women live bigger, bolder, grittier lives. Because I think one of the things that has really transformed me is the election of Donald Trump and seeing that so many people would vote for a serial philanderer who, who boasted about his behavior with women. And then to see all the other things that have happened, Harvey Weinstein, you know, the, the gender gap in pay equality in the United States has gone backwards. It's stalled since 2008. I could go on and on and on. Women of color in STEM feel unsafe on the job. And so 
what I realized is the scales came off my eyes and I realized that I'd been a complacent middle-aged woman who assumed that women were taken more seriously than we are and that we don't have as many um, health benefits and, and pay benefits as I thought we did. And it's worse than I thought. And whatever I can do for the rest of my life, it's going to be about arming my sisters and um, my friends and my acquaintances and my daughter and her generation with all of the proven evidence-based tools to succeed because there's been a finding in the last few years that you may know about as a doctor that's very alarming. And that is that middle-aged women are now dying in epidemic numbers from what we call diseases of despair. And the diseases of despair are alcoholism, eating disorders, suicide, opioid, opioid abuse, and so on. And the question is, why are women, why are women succumbing in these untold historic numbers um, to diseases of despair? And how do we reach them to help them find passion and purpose for goals that are important to them and give them hope? Going back to hope, how do we give people hope that life can be better, that they have more of what it takes than they think they do to do these hard things? And so that's the mission I'm on, and that's what gets me up every day, and that's what pulls me forward, is I feel like since I overcame my eating disorder, my purpose was to give people hope they could do hard things. And now it's really telescoped to how can I help other women do things they don't think they can do in order to become their best selves. And so that's my next book is called Gritty Women. Um, and I'm working on it now. And I really do think that this is what I was meant to do. All these books have brought me to the point where this is my mission in life. Wow. I felt so much emotion that I got full body chills and my eyes teared up. You, you have it. You have that passion. Thank you. Thank you so much. You are accomplishing your mission because I'm telling you, your book went straight to my heart and it oh. gave me that ump to know that I can do this and that it's good for me. And I love evidence, you know, being a physician, evidence-based, yeah. you give me evidence-based grit. I'm all for it. So thank you. And, and thank you for doing the work you do. Thank you. If I could just add one thing, what you're doing is what I'm talking about here about relational grit by sharing your message of hope and inspiration and giving people a look at new ways to do things. How do you live better? How do you eat better? You're building up what I call is this relational grit. And I think, I think this is a national crisis. I think we became complacent. I think we became a generation of self-esteem parenting. I think we got soft and complacent. And I think it's an urgent call. And I think it's probably the most important thing any of us could do is to learn how to raise the standards um, and to, to pursue excellence, not just being okay or good enough. And by using social media to get these messages out there, you're doing your part and doing exactly um, what we're talking about. And one more thing I want to add about women, because there's so many things that have gotten my attention this year. But in September, I was invited here in Washington to the first salon um, of Harvard and Yale affiliated women who had graduated from you know, undergraduate, graduate school, whatever. But they said, let's bring women together to, to tackle and talk about some of the biggest issues that occupy women's attention. And the first um, topic that they picked was woman, women undermining other women, women bullying other women, women not making it possible for other women to succeed. And what stunned me is that this particular gathering was so overrun with people trying to get in the doors. They, they literally ran out of tickets immediately. And there were people begging for video feeds. How can we get in? Can we do satellite meetings? And I got one of the tickets and I was able to go. And it was two hours of listening to women talking about about en masse all these other women who had taken them down. And it's a tragedy, but it's something we have to talk about as women, is this is the elephant in the room when it comes to women being successful, is other women not always being uh, supporters. And we have to learn to have a default setting of supporting other women, not feeling threatened by them. And so it's really important for all of us to look at other women, not as competitors, but as peers. If we don't uplift each other, we're all going to sink in this swamp that we've all seen is just more pervasive than we thought. So I just think we all have to deal with the elephant in the living room of women being undermining of other women and call it what it is and then deal with the fact that we have to align ourselves with women who are more proactive and positive be around them as we uplift each other we will then uplift everyone else 
Um, absolutely. I love that. And I feel that part of the issue is social media, this need to be perfect. And then there are these images of what we think are these perfect women that have it all together, don't ever make mistakes. And then it makes everybody else fearful of being honest about their struggles. And so then nobody's talking to each other. We all just have yeah. these assumptions, which, you know, women are great at making assumptions. And then trying to tear each other down. But instead, if we normalize right. some of the struggle that we go through, the struggle with our marriages, the struggle with parenting, the struggle with our careers, the struggle with eating and body image. I mean, that's right. like every woman, right? And we embrace each other and try to help each other. Be like, oh, this is how I solve this problem. This is how I solve right. this problem. Let me help you with yours. I right. think it's going to get rid of some of that women tearing each other down because of this insecurity that we yes. feel inside, you know? And I, I, I'm trying to figure out ways to do this. I'm applying for a grant to go to Radcliffe. Um, you know, part of Harvard is Radcliffe. And it's now Harvard Radcliffe. But they have a feminist library there. And I want to study the correspondence of pioneering women like Alice Paul, who, who helped women, um, you know, get the vote back in 1920. I want to study the correspondence and find out what were they writing to each other? How did they uplift each other um, during these times when they were really breaking extraordinary and I think part of it is what you just said, which is we have to share our stories of struggle and overcoming. That's the only way we can become relatable to each other. And with so many people trying to appear flawlessly perfect or, you know, and in this instant gratification society, how does anyone know that struggle's okay? How does anyone know they can overcome struggle? So um, one of the things that was very difficult for me to finally share I, I said a few years ago is that my mother is a borderline and that her goal was really to take me down in life. And so my biggest enemy was not my mother. I mean, was, was my mother. It, she wasn't my role model. She wasn't my friend. She wasn't interested in uplifting me. She tried to give me to an orphanage when I was seven because she just didn't like me. And actually my father's greatest gift to me as he was dying was he said, she never loved you. And so for me to finally admit, you know what? I didn't have that soft place to fall, but you know what? I still made it. I still found a group of surrogate women to be my mentors. But So you don't have to have it all lined up perfectly in order to be a successful woman, but you can't quit. You have to find ways to keep going. And for me to actually acknowledge, I didn't even have that base of love to build upon when I was a child, but you know what? It's okay. I got over my eating disorder. I got married. I'm still married. I've great kids. I got good therapy. I figured out how to get there. And you know what? If I did, you can too. And those are the messages of not being perfect that we have to share with other women so that they know that it's okay to share their stories too. Oh, that's so beautiful. And yes, you definitely are an inspiration and a role model. Before we close out, I wanted to ask you something I also ask all my guests is what personal habit are you most proud of? How did you develop it? And how do you maintain it? Wow, what an easy question. Um, uh, let's see, what hard habit? I'm going to have to give you two. So the thing I think I'm still proudest of in my life is overcoming my eating disorder. Because if I had started to overcome my, my bulimia in 1984 at a time of trigger warnings, I never would have made it. Because the whole world's a trigger if you're bulimic. Every, everywhere you go, there's food. You have to touch it. You have to smell it. You have to eat it. And I simply said, I'm going to figure out how to get through this. And I did. Um, and so it went from being a hopeless disorder to a disorder people can't overcome. So I think I'm proudest of that. How did I do it? I did it by going to 12-step meetings and seeing other people who were overcoming eating disorders and hearing their stories and beginning to believe that if someone else overcame it, I could too. And then right along with that, I realized that real recovery meant I had to stop drinking. And... Um, and I think that's a key reason why I've had no relapse since 1984. Is alcohol is not in my, my life, and it is part of my genetic heritage is alcoholism. But again, I did both of these things one day at a time by going to meetings where I saw people who were getting better. Alcoholics Anonymous, stories of overcoming, and people are having fun in there. I mean, people can't believe it. AA meetings are like the best place in the world to be. Everyone's having a great time. They're laughing. They're talking about overcoming. They're resilient. There's slogans on the wall one day at a time. I mean, 
nothing's missing. It's great. So that's how I did it with uh, one day at a time slogans, stories, and um, the support and love of people who wanted the best for me. And because of that, I became the woman I am. And um, I'm forever. And that's why my grit book is um, dedicated to all of the anonymous people in 12 step groups that saved my life 30 years ago. And because of that, I've turned around and they say, you can't keep what you don't give away. I give it away every day. I have to, because I can't keep it if I don't give it away. Oh, that's beautiful. Caroline, how can people connect with you and find out more about your products and services? Thank you. Um, well, I speak a lot and I coach in a lot of organizations and I teach at the Wharton Business School. I teach Goals and Grit. And all of this is on my website, carolinemiller.com. Um, my books are there. Everything's there. I'm kind of an open book if I'm going to use a cliche. <laughs> That's awesome. Thank you so much. This was an amazing conversation. I know we probably could have doubled it and still been talking and talking and talking. So thank you so much. I said, you inspire me, and I'm so grateful for the work that you do and all the books that you've written. So for the listeners, please visit her at carolinemiller.com, and I am so looking forward to your next Thank book. you. Thank <laughs> you. Can't Thank wait. You. Thank you for your time, your energy, and your passion for what you do. I really appreciate it. All right. Well, have a plantastic day. <laughs> Thank you. I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in, and I look forward to having you back again next week. A very special thank you to the band Rocket Surgeons for permission to use the broccoli song. To find out more about the Rocket Surgeons, please visit their website at rocketsurgeonsband.com or Facebook at facebook.com forward slash rocketsurgeonsmusic. Also, for more information on my work, you can find me at facebook.com forward slash veggiefitkids, or you can email me at veggiedoctor, V-E-G-G-I-E-D-O-C-T-O-R at veggiefitkids.com. Sharing is caring. Please share, rate, and review my podcast, and contact me if you have ideas for future episodes. Thank you once again, and have a plantastic day. We're having broccoli. credit card bill.